So Acts chapter 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a coat with her, and tie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king, in, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the roads. And the crowds went before him, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So verses that communicate real joy that the people of Jerusalem experience as Jesus enters their city and it impacts the whole city and it stirs everything up. I can't help but be struck from about what stirs these people up. Here is Jesus who we now know is king entering a city which for all intents and purposes is his and he does so in an immensely humble and non-threatening way and I find that fascinating and very unlike the world that we live in it was very unlike the world that Jesus lived in in his time if somebody of power or substance was entering somewhere, there was a whole procession. There was horses, there was this demonstration that there was someone of power entering, someone that ought not to be trifled with was coming to that town. Even today, we still have these demonstrations. I don't know how many people watch the opening of Parliament. I find the opening of Parliament absolutely fascinating. I don't know if that just means I'm getting old or what, or I need to find better things to watch on television, I'm not sure. But all this pomp and procession, it's not done just for the sake of it. It's done to communicate something. It's done to communicate the power and prestige of the nation that the head of state represents. So when the Queen goes and opens Parliament, there is all this stuff because it communicates something as to the person who's doing this task. I know I've referred a few times to the American election, but I find it very striking that this election is playing out as we as Christians head into Easter. So you look across the pond and we see how 
power is campaigned for elsewhere. And, well, it's the same really here as well when it hits election time. Although there is Scottish elections going on, I don't know if you're aware of that. I got a shock when the voting poll came from Adora, I had no idea. But there is. But this is all going down and you see these potentials standing at their board with their emblem in front of it, all this stuff meant to communicate something as to who they hope to become. And they're using their different tactics to try and get to those places. There's all this pomp and display of power. And then we come to verses such as these. Verses where the guy that the Bible says created all of this enters a city. And he enters it in this amazing way. I could only call this prophetic theatre. Because it's absolutely astonishing what Jesus does here. Now, of course, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy as he does this. But he's not just fulfilling a prophecy for the sake of fulfilling the prophecy. No, it's the opposite. The prophecy is there to tell us something about the guy who is coming. So Jesus enters the city in this remarkable way. The disciples get the coat. It's not an intimidating horse. In fact, Jesus doesn't ride in on anything remotely intimidating at all. He rides in humbly on what these verses call a beast of burden. And yet the whole town is stirred up. The town is recognising at this time that entering the town is someone of extreme significance. I can't help but wonder what the disciples thought was happening here. We know from different parts of the Bible that the, the disciples were hoping that what Jesus would do is head into Jerusalem, drive out the ruling authorities and restore the kingdom of Israel. I wonder if they at this point thought this was a victory march. As they headed in and as people got stirred up that this was going to be the point that Jesus would go in and drive out the Romans, establishing victory for the nation of Israel. And all their expectations would be fulfilled. I do wonder if that's what they thought. But if they did think that, we know. Because hindsight's a wonderful thing that they thought wrong. When Jesus rides in, in humility, with the whole town taking note, he actually intentionally, consistently, rides in with that humility that flows throughout his whole life. Jesus is communicating something to these people and to us about how we perform and live and act in the world that we live in. He resists the power tactics that the world would use. Doesn't employ the strategies that those who were around would use. The ruling powers that surrounded. But instead displays remarkable humility. 
And that strikes me. For here is the head of our church. And by that I mean the church worldwide. Displaying at this moment remarkable humility. And if we were to ask people around us, our neighbours, our work colleagues, what the first word that they would associate with the church is. I'm not talking about Ellen Baptist Church, I'm talking about the church in general. Would it be humility? Would that be one of the first things that comes to mind? The reality is, I think there is most definitely a perception issue, and quite a fair perception issue. The church that was established way back 2,000 years ago was established on the example of Jesus Christ, and we see this play out consistently for so long. Now, the church ultimately merged with the state, and it did so during the time of a guy called Emperor Constantine. Yeah, he's not just a Marvel comic character. He was a real person as well. And this guy merged the church and the state, and things changed at that point. The church had power. And the church used power in ways that weren't all that constructive. And it did so for many a year after that. Even if you look back into the British history of what it means to be Baptist... There was times of extreme difficulty for us because there were certain churches you could go to, certain churches you couldn't, and we were not on the good list. It was all wrapped up in this. So I wonder, when we ask people what they think of, when we speak of church, what comes to their mind? I'd like to think when we speak of church, we would think of our brothers and sisters who are sat here this morning, of the encouragement that we get from one another, of the prayer that we get from one another, of that importance of fellowship as we journey together, growing in Jesus Christ. But I do wonder what other people perceive the church to be. And do they perceive it to be anything like what the God that we call our head did in verses such as these where he displayed the most remarkable humility. The reality is Jesus was consistently humble. The Bible tells us that we are to be consistently humble. We are told, for instance, that we are to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And in his time, he will exalt us. The call upon us in a verse such as that is that we are to seek humility. That is to be our focus. And in verses such as these, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem and displays this kind of humility, for me that is striking. If we are to be imitators of Jesus Christ, to be very careful about what we do, especially if we find ourselves in places of what we would call power. Whether that is at home or at work, running some social club. What do we do? 
Because I think historically the church, throughout the generations, again speaking to about the church generally, hasn't actually handled power all that well. It's been misused. I think often with the best of intentions. But it's been misused. What Jesus does here is communicate something that isn't threatening. I find it very interesting that when he finally gets before Pontius Pilate later on, he doesn't have much an idea who Jesus is. The fact there was a commotion in Jerusalem, that would have probably registered. But some guy riding on a donkey in a coat, I'm not going to bother too much about that. Jesus didn't exude power and control. If anything, in situations like this, he displayed himself as powerless, riding on a vulnerable creature into the city. So I asked myself the question, what does that look like to live? If we take seriously and consistently the call to humility, what does that look like in our lives in the many different situations that we will find ourselves in? For instance, if something's not going my way and I'm tempted to chuck the toys out the pram, which I'm sure we all do, what does it look like to have humility in that context? If someone's done something that's offended us, what does it look like to have humility in that context? If we are, and I don't know how many bosses and managers that we've got, what does it look like to be a boss or a manager that does it on the principles of Jesus Christ? For me, I wrestle with what does it mean to be a pastor who tries to do it on the principles of Jesus Christ? Guess what? It actually introduces ambiguity. It's quite easy to grasp hold of power because it makes everything quite clear. It's my decision. You'll do as you're tell. Reminds me of how I do parenting, actually. Maybe there's an element of how do we parent as followers of Jesus Christ. There's one for me to ponder. But that makes things simple. Easy. We're in control. But if we practice humility, we have to release control. And that's trickier. That means we've got to wrestle with our responses a bit more. Now it brings ambiguity. I mean, sometimes that we recognize actually what we did wasn't the best thing that we could do in that situation. And actually, here's one for us to ponder. How do we manifest this kind of attribute of Jesus Christ as a community to the town around us? I think we do this in a lot of ways already. We do it in our service. We did it by creating a working party that went and helped at people's houses. We do it by putting on different events. But how can we continue that 
and show the kind of humility that Jesus is willing to show. So I ask myself the question, and I ask us the question, how quick are we at times to make things about us? About what we like? About what we think? About what we want? And lose sight of a God in whom we trust, who calls us to imitate him inconsistently and powerfully lived humility and put in others before himself. For me, this is one of the remarkable places he displays this, and one of the other places I think he really powerfully displays this is when he washes the disciples' feet. I don't know about you, but we don't have the cultural hang-ups that they had back in Jesus' day about feet. It was a, quite a significant thing to make sure your feet were clean and quite an unclean thing to wash somebody's feet. I don't have any of those hang-ups when it comes to my faith or religion. But I can tell you confidently this morning that the thought of washing somebody's feet is bogging. <laughs> I don't have any of those hang-ups. But Jesus got down on his hands and knees as one who lived within those cultural hang-ups and washed the disciples' feet. That displays amazing humility. And I know there are some churches that will actually reenact that. That's not really one thing I'd be comfortable with. And I also have to say I have ridiculously tickly feet. So if somebody was to try and wash my feet, I'm afraid they would probably get kicked. In fact, no, they would get kicked. But Jesus consistently displayed humility, displayed a different way to be and to live and to act in the world that we live in and calls us as part of that kingdom to live in line with the example that he set. One of the things that we say so frequently, we say it in song, and we say it in how we live our lives, is that Jesus Christ is Lord. We obey Jesus. But I do wonder... Humility. It's not the easiest path to follow. For one, it means dying to self. Doing what Jesus says in the sense he says, pick up your cross daily. And die to self. Humility, I think, is one of the key ways in which we do that. And of course, we know as this week plays on, and we will remember in the evenings the unfolding of the narrative of Easter, that Jesus literally does die to self. Lays down his life. Now, I am quite confident, but perhaps maybe we shouldn't be, that us walking a path of humility and obedience isn't going to lead us to a literal execution. Not in our country. But it will lead us to some interesting times as we seek more and more to walk the kind of path that Jesus Christ walked. But one of the questions I asked myself was, why is power so alluring? 
And why did Jesus so consistently reject it? And this kingdom that Jesus has set up at this time, and in the Gospels that we read of, and we take example of, Jesus consistently rejects power. He rejects it when he's tempted by the devil. He rejects it when people go to try and make him king. Instead, he sets up this example of humble living. Why is power alluring? Why do you think? I mean, even if we go back to these elections, people spend millions, in Scotland's case, maybe thousands, um, but in other countries, millions of pounds to try and get one position. Power has an appeal, and some people, it's good intentions. They want to change stuff, make stuff better, make a difference. But there is a lure of power. Why? And why did Jesus resist it? I think one of the reasons that power is appealing is it makes us feel safe and secure. It makes us feel like we're in control. The reality is we're very rarely ever in control of much. But it can create that feeling of safety. I don't know about you, but I like feeling safe. I lock my doors at night. And I check them again. Part of that is because Jude might run out of one of them. But part of that is because I like feeling safe. Safety is important. Safety is good. But why does power appeal? And why does it appeal to us as Christians? The reality is, I believe that appeals for safety, that the reality, the true reality, is we're at our safest when we're in our master's hands. That, for me, is the true reality that can so often escape us. I could feel safe if I built a fort. Nice, big, huge, high fort. Maybe if I had a lot of money, I could hire myself an army. Maybe some retired SAS folks. And I could sit in a protected room. I might feel safe. The reality is I'm in control of very little at that point. I'm not safe. I'm not safe because you can only protect yourself from so much. I could build all that. And I could find myself in this deeply protected environment. And I could find myself having some sort of health problem and I kind of get out. How can we feel safe? We can feel safe when we trust Jesus. When we place our lives in our hands intentionally in his hands. And I think that's something we are, and I use that word intentionally, purposefully, because I think, I don't know about you, 
but I can mosey on through the day quite easily and not take the time to intentionally remind myself of who my God is. My God is one who displays this remarkable humility and calls me to do the same. But unlike me, who is weak, my God isn't. My God rose. My God reigns. He lives and he's coming back. And he assures us that he is with us always. That's when we're at home. It's when we're doing the shopping at Tesco. It's when we're driving in our car and perhaps getting irritated by the slow driver in front of us. It's when we're at work. Always. Our God is with us. In that sense, we are safe. And we are secure because we're told nothing can pluck us from his hands. But what he demonstrates to us as he rides in on a coat is remarkable humility. And the more we understand our safety in Jesus Christ, I think the more comfortable we can be to display the kinds of humility that Jesus asks of us. It's not easy. Nobody likes when we feel we've been wronged, or overlooked, or vulnerability. But Jesus calls us to a path of deep humility. He's always with us. He will empower us. Do you believe this morning that God empowers you? I'm going to take that as a no, I think. Let's try it again. Do we believe this morning that God empowers you? It's a bit better. But we'll stop there. Let's not get too enthusiastic. God empowers us. He equips us. He promises always to be with us. He tells us that he's prepared things in advance for us to do. But asks us, invites us to live and to walk the same path as Jesus Christ. It's no anomaly that First Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Because Jesus did precisely that. And we're beckoned on to this path where the ways of the world are no longer our ways. But the ways of Jesus Christ are. And that can bring ambiguity. It can bring even frustration at times. But we walk and follow the way of our Messiah. He is always with us. And you know who else is, should always be with us? Look to your left and your right. Go on. Look to your left and your right. 
is here, brothers and sisters. You've been drawn into this family. Sometimes you might think for better and sometimes you might think for worse. But we are called to journey with one another. We are with one another too. So you know those times where you try to do this kind of stuff. Maybe it's at work and you've got a really, really irritating boss. I've had one of them before. Maybe more than one, in fact, a couple. We all probably have. And you're trying to work out how do I function as a Christian with this boss that I only want to hit? Or roar at? How do I function? Ask your brothers and sisters. Get prayer for it. It's amazing what leaning on one another does for the issues and the burdens that we have. Don't carry them alone. Don't, don't walk alone. Because we don't. We've got Jesus with us. But we've got one another as well. We're a family in Christ Jesus. But we're a family who's called to live a remarkable way. Demonstrated by God himself being this humble king. We're called to imitate him. That brings challenge. Lean on God and lean on one another as well.